John 13, beginning at verse 36. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would, have to would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's, uh, let's pray together and just ask for the Lord Jesus to help us as we open his word. Lord Jesus, just thank you for the, the precious gift of uh, your word that you have given us. And um, uh, just for the, the joy, for the blessing, for the life that flows from you to us through your word. We would ask, Lord, that your spirit uh, would gracefully and powerfully open our eyes and our hearts to hear you speaking tonight. We ask, Lord God, that we would respond to you uh, with faith and hope and trust uh, in what you teach us and in you supremely. Amen. Amen. Well, Thursday uh, marked Ascension Day, and uh, we were thinking of uh, the Lord's Ascension, of course, uh, into heaven. And I was struck as uh, I looked through Luke's account of how the disciples stood uh, staring as Jesus disappeared into the cloud of God's glory. And did so until the angelic messengers encouraged them to get about their business. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the way that you have seen him go into heaven. And I have a lot of sympathy with the disciples standing there gazing after Jesus as he departs. I've often found myself doing that, gazing after, well, the girls when they were younger, or Deborah, she disappears off to work until they've absolutely disappeared from sight. Have you ever do, do you do that, or is that just soft old me? Maybe you remember, uh, maybe you remember a, a child's first day at school and how they wandered down the path and the uh, hand of the teacher and the little tears tripping them as they looked back at you and you were waving at them and putting on a false cheery smile. I'll see you later. You reassured them. 
We don't want them to go. And I wonder if that was in the hearts of the disciples that day as they stood looking at the Lord going into heaven. I don't want them to go. Because that was certainly what was in their hearts in this passage that, uh, that uh, we had read there. He had told them that he was going, and he was going, and they couldn't follow him. And they were distraught. They didn't want to see Jesus go. And Jesus was clearly also pained for them about being separated from them. Uh, he invited them to trust in him, to trust God. And he encouraged them with this promise, I'll be back to get you. Times in our lives, or many times in our lives, when we long for Jesus to be here now in person, and maybe you're in that place tonight, especially when life's at its hardest and its toughest and its most difficult, we just long for him to be physically present, or even better, for the heavens above us to open and Christ to return in all his glory and bring about that new heavens and that new earth. And I think we all often unconsciously long for Jesus too. Even when we're not Christians. When we read of that horrific attack in the school in America, we wish the world wouldn't be like that. We're longing for Jesus' rule and his justice, even if we don't know it. When we angrily refuse to believe in God because of the evil that we see in the world, you know, deep down in our hearts unconsciously, we're longing for the rule of Jesus. We want the kingdom that only he can bring. We want the one who heals, who raises the dead, who stills the storms of life, who lifts up the brokenhearted. We want the one who brings justice. I doubt that there's a human being in the world who hasn't at times, maybe many times, longed for Jesus to be here, but not even realized that it was him that they were longing for. If you ever read at Mark's Gospel and look at the life of Jesus and see the kind of things that he did and said and ask yourself in just all honesty if those are not the very things that you've been crying out for in the midst of your pain and your hunger and your sorrow, you've been crying out for Jesus. You want his kingdom. You want his rule and you want him. As Christians, we know that he is here with us through his Holy Spirit. And he says that that is better for us now, that he can be with us all everywhere. But Paul still hit the nail on the head when he said, to be with Christ is better by far. And it's good to look forward to that day when he will return. But as we wait for it, as we long for him, I think all of us need this constant reassurance, just like the child going into to school, that he will be back. And Jesus gives us assurance here. So we're going to look at this passage together and, and then we'll think about how it might apply. And the first heading, if you're taking notes, I've got is the pain of parting. Just uh, before Jesus gave the uh, the uh, love command that Andrew looked at with us uh, last week, he had said this to his disciples in verse 33. My children, a lovely term. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, 
Where I am going, you cannot come. Now in verse 36, Peter picks Jesus' comment up. It had really affected him. That thought that he might not be able to follow Jesus anymore. Simon Peter said to him, verse 36, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. And I think that that answer is likely to have stung Peter's heart even more. Jesus is pointing out to his disciples that he's now saying to them, he's saying to his Peter, the same thing that he had said to the Jews previously, that they would not be able to follow him. Jesus previously told the Jews in chapter 7, verse 34, and in chapter 8, verse 21, that they couldn't follow him. And in the light of their hardness of heart, that makes great sense. But now he's saying this to his disciples, that they cannot follow him. There's a difference. When Jesus had spoken to the Jews in chapter 7, he had told them that they would look for him, but would not find him. And in chapter 8, verse 21, he told them that they would die in their sin. But that's not repeated in this reference to Peter and to the disciples. In fact, Jesus says the opposite. They will eventually follow him. But for Peter, that's not enough. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. Literally, Peter says, the life of me on behalf of you, I will lay down. What irony, isn't there, in that? Jesus told the disciples in chapter 10, verse 11, that the good shepherd is the one who lays down his life for the sheep. And Peter has failed to understand his own desperate need. Now that Jesus' death is approaching, he wants to die on behalf of Jesus. He wants to engage in heroics rather than gratefully receiving Jesus' death for him. He's still not learned the lesson, has he, of the foot washing. John writes, Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the cock will not crow till you have denied me three times. Jesus actually repeats Peter's words back to him, word for word. Will you, on behalf of me, lay down your life? He's inviting Peter to think about that. He seems to be saying, am I the one who needs saving here, Peter? And Jesus immediately goes on to predict Peter's denial. It's not, it's not Jesus who needs saving. It's Peter who needs Jesus to lay down his life for him. Pain of parting. Well, secondly, John goes on to record Jesus' remedy to that pain of parting, faith and hope. In chapter 14, he speaks to all the disciples. It's hard to overestimate just how devastated the disciples must have been at this news that Jesus was leaving them. All of them have left absolutely everything to follow Jesus. Their families, their communities, their work, their homes. They have staked everything on him. And now he is telling them that they can no longer follow him. He's telling them that they'll be separated from him. 
Jesus doesn't for a moment underestimate their grief. And he moves to console them. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. The first remedy to their despair and their anxiety is that they should trust both God the Father and Jesus himself. Just think of a child who says goodbye to a parent at the school date on the first day of school. For that child, it is shocking and it is devastating. The loss, the fear that they have. And the antidote to that is faith. Faith that their parent will come again. That they'll be reunited, reunited no matter how long the school day seems. And mine always seemed interminably long. But they really know where the parent, the parent loves them. They know that and cares for them. And with the repeated experience that the parent does come back, that trust in the parent grows day by day. And the fear of parting at the school date diminishes until they're eventually skipping down the drive. They learn to trust their parent. And Jesus encourages the disciples to trust God, to trust him, to trust the Lord that they have really come to know. So trust is one remedy for the pain of parting. Trust me. The second is found in the hope that Jesus generates. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And when I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. And you'll know that lots of ink has been spilt over the years as to whether these are mansions or rooms. Modern preferences for rooms. And if you, like me, were hankering after Buckingham Palace, well, we'd be sorely disappointed. But the point really is simply, isn't it, that there's no shortage of space. There'll be nobody who will uh, be told, well, I'm sorry, you, there's just no room left for you. There's plenty of space for the disciples, for all whom Jesus will call. And Jesus is going to prepare a place for them. What does that mean? I honestly can remember as a child, whenever the minister was speaking about that in church, thinking in my head that Jesus was up there and he got his carpentry tools out again and he was busy building me the house of my dreams. For a while, I hoped it was a tree house. Uh, then it was a house by the sea. Then it was a house on an exotic island with Robinson Crusoe. I was a builder's nightmare, always adding, always changing. Of course, that's not what he's saying. And in the next few chapters of John's Gospel, well, John reveals that Jesus going and preparing means being arrested, being falsely accused, being murdered on a cross, rising from the dead, and ascending into heaven. Preparing a place for the disciples means that that Jesus must die for them, for us. You know, sometimes we hear people say something along the lines of, if God were real, why doesn't he deal with the evil in this world? Why doesn't he stop all the evil things happening? And maybe you find yourself wondering that, maybe even this week. Well, part of the Bible's answer to that is that the God, that Jesus really takes the mess of this world far more seriously than we do. You and I get angry when we see suffering and evil in the world. 
That is nothing in comparison to how angry God is about it. The Bible calls God's hostility to all that is evil in this world his wrath. It's shown to be unrelenting and indiscriminate hostility to evil wherever it's encountered. Was God full of wrath at what took place in the USA this week? Of course he was. Was God furious with what's taking place in the Ukraine? Of course he is. But God is full of wrath at every evil he sees in this world. God is full of wrath at everything that has made you suffer in your life. He is full of wrath at every hurtful word that has been said about you, whether you've heard them or not. God is full of wrath at every injustice that you have ever suffered. He is full of wrath about every evil that you have ever encountered in your life. What you and I think of as minor suffering, God regards as an affront to all that he is. The fact that others have not loved you as much as they've loved themselves provokes God's utter condemnation. God is far more wrathful about the evil in this world than you and I can ever imagine. But the problem is that we have all done evil. None of us have loved others as we've loved ourselves. None of us have loved the God who has made us. We're not only sufferers, we're also sinners. And God is full of wrath at sin. Peter thought he would lay down his life to save Jesus. But it's Jesus who has to lay down his life to save Peter and you and me. In John chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus explained to a God-fearing Jewish man called Nicodemus that just as Moses was lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And very soon, Jesus will be lifted up on a cross, separated from his disciples and from God the Father, so that God's righteous anger at evil can be fully paid for by him and that we can be restored to God. Peter later did understand this. And he wrote in 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Because Jesus went and prepared a place for us in eternity by dying for us, all those who believe in him have this great hope to look forward to of being with Jesus once again. Until this point in the gospel, Jesus has been focusing on, on how and why they need to be rescued. Now he's explaining what they're being rescued for, for an eternity with him. And so Jesus encourages disciples to believe in God and in him and to look forward expectantly to his return and to being reunited with him. And that's a perfect comfort for troubled people, isn't it? 
imagine heading for uh, an operation and you're feeling anxious and the surgeon comes to see you and he, he senses your anxiety, they're a compassionate person, they want to reassure you, what do they do? Well, they'll give you maybe a reason to put their trust in them. Maybe they'll tell you how many times that they've carried this operation out before. They'll maybe describe the procedure, what they're going to do, so that you gradually feel, yeah, I, can, I can trust this person. I can rely on them. They know what they're about. They'll seek then maybe to build your hope. They might talk about the outcomes. This will improve your quality of life, what you can hope for, what you can look forward to as a result of what they will do. In my case, uh, uh, before a, uh, a leg operation I had, the surgeon came to see me and looking for reassurance, I asked him if uh, he did this particular operation very often. It's all I do, he said. It's my speciality. And I felt so reassured, trusted him. Well, until I asked him if, if I was the first one that he'd be doing this morning, he said, no, he said, you're the third. And as I always say, third time lucky. <laughs> well, happily he went on to reassure me that the operation would be, uh, would be, uh, would be successful that I'd walk out of the theatre in half an hour uh, and quickly feel back on my feet again, and he was absolutely right. Well, the disciples are, are going to miss Jesus desperately. And in response, Jesus invites them to put their trust in him, in the Father and in him. Trust me, he says. And he urges them to expect good results. He will come back. They'll be with him. There's a 100% success rate. There are many rooms. Thomas responds, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If you had known me, you'd have known my Father also. Henceforth you know him and have seen him. And Jesus' statement in that verse really shows that nothing else will do to gain salvation. A person needs to come to Jesus himself if he's going to reach the Father. There's no other way. And maybe you're here tonight and, and perhaps don't know Jesus. You look at the evil in this world and you hate it. You long for a better world, a perfect world. You maybe even long for a better and a perfect you. That's not foolish. It is the longing of a heart for Christ, who alone is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the one that you're looking for. Can I encourage you, if that's you, to have a real look at Jesus? He says he is the one you're looking for. Indeed, that if we see him, we've seen the Father. He's the one your heart is crying out for you, for Maybe tonight, well, there are many of you who do know the Lord as Christians, and you look at the awful things in this week, and maybe are battling with other awful things in your life, and are, are crying out in your heart for Jesus, for an end to the suffering, for all that you're going to inherit with assurance when he returns. Maybe you're discouraged or feel like giving up. And Jesus is saying to you and me tonight, trust me, trust me. I will return. I will take you to be with me. Just like a child in the classroom waiting for their parent, you need to be reminded to trust in him. 
He'll return and take with you, take you to be with him forever. The evil will end. The Lord will take his people to be with himself. He has gone to prepare a place for you and he will return. Finally, just to sum it up in a sentence. The time of physical separation from Jesus is a time when we go through many pains and dismay and are troubled in our hearts. We experience the pain of life in a fallen world and we cannot escape that. But the way to tackle this is through trust and retaining that eternal perspective. Jesus departed, secures our salvation and a place in heaven with him forever. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, when we face troubles and difficulties and, and hardships in our lives, that's when we, we need time and again just to be reassured and comforted by you. We need, Heavenly Father, for you to strengthen our hearts in us when we're, we're prone not to trust you, prone to doubt you. Lord, remind us of your character. Remind us of all that we've come to know about you in Scripture and build that trust. And Father, you remind us here also of this wonderful work that Christ has done for us, securing us for all eternity by giving his life for us. And Lord, you give us hope in this passage. Lord, we have a glorious hope stretching out ahead of us. We, we talked in our confession about how quick we are sometimes to, to focus in this world and to forget all about the, the glorious inheritance that our Lord Jesus Christ has assuredly won for us. And we would ask that your spirit, as we hear your word, would build and strengthen our faith and our hope in him. Amen.